I thought I'd put a little fear into you. I figured you'd like to discuss theology. All right. No, I found out I wasn't wired. Forgot my microphone. All right. Well, tonight, I will ask you to make your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. I have provided you with an outline. I in no way intend to... Okay. Raise your hand if you did not get a copy. What now? Okay. Thanks, Don. Uh, I supplied you with an outline of 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. I'm giving you that so that you will think about the issue of defending your faith. So we may ask, why is it necessary uh, to learn theology? Why is it necessary to lay the groundwork like we did last week? And still heard some jokes about the term prolegomena, right? What is this? But the laying that foundation is important. And then we spent a lot of time last week discussing that very issue of how it all leads up to a worldview that's different from the world. We have a Christian worldview and we want to think theologically. And in the coming weeks, we're going to deal with the eight major doctrines of the church, which we talked about on your outline that you got last week, that will include the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of God, creation, we'll talk about angelology, and we'll talk about the doctrine of man and sin, and the doctrine of Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and the church, and we'll also deal with last things. But tonight, in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, it gives us help in thinking correctly in order that we can be ready always to explain to others what we believe and why we believe. Peter was writing to a group of people who were going through some difficult times and persecution and trial and suffering, and they needed to be able to give a defense for their faith. The theme of 1 Peter is the glory of God realized through suffering. And in the midst of their difficulties, it was important for them to be ever-ready Christians. So really this is in the context of Christians suffering for the cause of Christ, and someone might say, why would you be willing to suffer like this? Wow, isn't that awesome? And we know why. Because of our Lord. Because of Christ. And and actually, there's a little deeper meaning. Uh, Paul says, not only have you been called uh, to joy in Christ, but you've also been gifted with the blessing of suffering for His cause as well. So that's kind of the backdrop and how I would like to begin tonight. And ask yourself, am I an ever-ready Christian to give a defense for the hope that is in me. And listen to this classic passage of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a, an apologia, a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And just walking you down through that outline quickly, we need to be ready for action. We need to seek what is good, and we need to be willing to suffer for what is right. Under the threat of persecution and suffering, perhaps some of these believers in in, uh, Rome were thinking about throwing in the towel and deserting the faith. But the fact is, uh, maybe they were even tempted to compromise their lifestyle. And Peter says, no matter what is going on, be ready for action. Uh, Do this by seeking what is good. And in seeking what is good, you may be called to suffer for what is right. And if you suffer for what is right, the Bible says you're blessed. It's one thing to suffer when you've done wrong and and you go to jail for it or you're criminalized for it. It's another thing to suffer for what is good when you know you're standing up for the Lord. So he raises a possibility that everybody even in this building could suffer for living for Christ. And doing that which is right. And that's a foreign concept in the United States. It has been up to this point, correct? When, uh, we, when we think about the American dream, we think the last thing we'll ever do in the United States of America is suffer for doing what is right. But uh, I will remind you that the days are coming uh, when it will cost us more to stand up for our faith. But he deems you sufficient and mature enough to expect suffering and that you won't drop out of the race when suffering and adversity comes our way. So during all of this, we also need to be ready with an answer for the faith that is within us. In the midst of suffering for what is right, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of uh, living for Christ, we need to be willing and ready to have a defense. So we're ready for action. But secondly, be ready with an answer. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. Is that important? I would say absolutely. Verse 15 is one of the key verses in the Bible regarding giving a defense of what hope that we have or an apologetic defense of what we believe. So according to this passage, we are called to set apart the Lord God in our hearts as holy and also to be ready to give that defense of what we believe. The best definition for defense is what we get our word apologetics from. It doesn't mean that you apologize for being a Christian. This is a proactive word where we are actually prepared and ready to give a defense for everyone to everyone who asks us about the hope that is within us. We're to give reasons why we defend our faith. We need to be coherent in our worldview thinking. And everything we laid the groundwork for last week is to help us think biblically and also what we're going to do tonight. Can you articulate to others what and why you believe what you believe? Can you, could you do that tonight? If someone said, explain the hope that is within you. Because perhaps they've witnessed you living a life that's different from theirs. Perhaps you've suffered some and been persecuted for the cause of Christ. And Could you articulate to them what you believe and why? Barna gave us an alarming statistic a few years ago when he said only 9% of those who profess to be born again could even give a minimalistic, in a minimalistic way, could they articulate Christian thinking. It's kind of sad. We need to be able to do better than that. We need to be able to explain the hope that we have. Now again, I told you this study is going to stretch you a little bit. You're going to be introduced to terminology that you've probably never heard before. 
And it's easy for us to put our minds in neutral and to coast. So my goal is going to be able to knock the straight shift out of neutral, right? And put you in at least first gear or second or third so that you'll be able to think biblically. Um, If your kids can learn geometry and chemistry and trigonometry and calculus and anatomy, you can learn theology. We all can. And then finally, be right, be ready with an attitude. And in verses 15 through 17, we are called to be ready with action, prepared with an answer. But we also have to have, to, we have to have the right attitude. And we dealt a little bit with that this morning. We're not some super uh, Christians above everyone else. We're just run-of-the-mill people who have been saved by grace through faith. And we need to treat people with respect. Even when we disagree and we're dealing with lost people, we still are called by the Lord to treat people with respect and with gentleness because ultimately you can't change anybody. Only Jesus Christ and the Word uh, can change your heart. And so there's attitudes that we need to have. We do it with reverence and respect. Uh, we give the answer, and we don't beat around the bush, but we do so with a winsome and attractive attitude, one that uh, reminds somebody of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, I want to remind you that our TBNers and our television crowd, uh, it doesn't sit too well with them today to say that people are going to suffer. Uh, that's not the message they're preaching. That's not the message that Joel Osteen preaches. He doesn't preach that you might have to suffer for the cause of Christ. Uh, but there's a huge difference for church family in building a crowd and in building a church. And our goal is to build Uh, Well, actually, Jesus said, I'll build my church. But our goal is to assist uh, in following the New Testament to make sure that we are a church that is not a church like the world desires, but a a church that the Lord would desire. So we never want to give the impression that we can rise above difficulties in life or that we're not going to suffer because this text tells us that we can suffer and even you can suffer for doing what is good. So tonight, let's quickly get something clear that all worldviews are not the same, and they're not equal. Uh, If you're going to be ready to give a defense of the faith, then you have to immediately understand that what we have as believers and Christians is not what everybody else has. It's not what they explain. And if you're serious in your convictions and your commitment to Christ, there are going to be some things you must oppose And you must reject. And here we have given to you seven basic worldviews when we raise the question of God. Like we talked about last week, if you were able to hear that one. What are the God options? And when I say God options, I'm saying small g, right? What are the God options? In other words, these gods are false, and we know that. But what are we seeing out in the marketplace? Do you have that handout? That actually came out in color. Y'all can see that one, right? Okay, well that represents uh, the seven major world views that are out there in this world. That you're going to have to defend your hope in Christ against this kind of belief that's out in the world. So let's talk about this for a moment. What about atheism? What can we say about atheism? Well, it's a world without God. Uh, There are two branches of atheism. There's hard dogmatism that says that God does not exist. Uh, 
And then there's soft agnosticism. And what does that mean? People would say, we're not sure if he can exist or not. He may be there, but we kind of doubt it. So there's doubt thrown on the fact. Maybe God does exist out there somewhere, but there's no way we can know that. A dogmatic atheist is adamant in his belief that there is no God. But remember, uh, atheists are going to a lot of lengths to describe and explain the fact that someone doesn't exist. Why do they worry about it if he doesn't exist? Uh, Because Romans 1 tells us that it's indispensable that mankind has been created with an understanding that God does exist. So for God, there are no atheists. Right? Uh, From his perspective... He's given them an understanding by his creation that he actually exists. So to be an atheist, again, they, they don't believe you can have any uh, statement of... They would believe in relativism. But if all truth is relative, then to say God doesn't exist is a relative statement. right? So it's self-defeating in, in what they say. I understand all that. But even theirs is a faith position. They're taking it uh, from a faith perspective, and this is a faith not given from God. This is their, their grasping to this to say, I believe that God doesn't exist. They've exhausted all of the evidence before them, and their conclusion is there's no God. When it comes to an agnostic without knowledge is what that means. There may be a God or gods. They don't know that. But in their experience, they have never met him or her So therefore, even though I can't say dogmatically no God exists, I still live as if there is no God. So the end result is basically the same with an atheist, whether they're hard dogmatics or soft agnostics, they're still the same. There's no supernatural entity that may invade their lives, and ultimately there's no one that they're ever going to be accountable to. It's kind of the way they live. So that's atheism. The second one is theism, or monotheism. This means belief in monotheists will be someone who believes in one God. So mono means one, theism means God. Theism affirms that you do believe there is a God, but monotheism says there is but one God. There's only one God outside the creative order. That's what a monotheist would believe. Interesting enough, there are only three clear monotheistic faiths in the world. One is our faith, Christianity. Does anybody know the other two? Huh? Speak up, right? Judaism and Islam. Now think about that. There's only three that claim that there is but one God. And of course, we know, biblically speaking, Yahweh, there's only one But, again, when it comes to Judaism, they would deny that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is God. However, we would say He is God. Correct? So, all three affirm one God, but not in the same way. Don't make that mistake to say, well, since they're a monotheistic person, as an Islamic person, then they believe the God we believe. No, that's not true. Not even close. Judaism has that connection with the God of the Old Testament, for sure but not in his full revelation as given to us through the person of Christ. So atheism, theism, pantheism. God is equal to the world. How about that? And the world is equal to God. There's a lady who believed this, hook, line, and sinker, and she espoused this view in the world. What was her name? 
Shirley McLean. That's it. This is what she believes. She believes that she herself is actually divine. Or is she still living? I don't think so, is she? She thought she was divine. If she's not living today. But she knows today she's not. But the fact is, she believes this. Uh, in other words, divineness is equal to all there is. Pan means all. So, all, so it means all that exists is God. And this is a very... Uh, this is a modern way of thinking today. It's called New Ageism. This is really at the root of what it means to be New Age. is pantheism. Alright? Are y'all getting all this? You having fun? A little different. I understand. Deism. Uh, this popular, popularly was called, years ago, the absent landlord theory. This, uh, in other words, God made the world... But like an absent landlord, he's gone. So, you remember Pele's watchmaker? I mean, God had the mechanics behind it. He wound up the world, but he just left the watch on its own after he made it to do whatever it wanted to do. Uh, so it's kind of the absent landlord. God created it, but it's running on its own. And God is not controlling it. So when we consider our constitution and pledge and coinage where the name of God is present, basically... They contain no more than a vague form of deism. That's really true when we say that. They don't tell you what this God is like. Which God and what kind of God are we talking about? The Supreme Court has actually used the term ceremonial deism. This is why they have left the phrase under God in the pledge. This God to them is there perhaps, but he's not involved with the world that he has made. Well, does it help you to pray? Well, no. He's not listening because he's uninvolved. He doesn't care, but he's out there somewhere. This is where the vast amount of Americans live day by day. Y'all do know that, don't you? Did you know that Thomas Jefferson was a deist? We quote him a lot. He said some good things, but there's something called the Jeffersonian Bible. And you know what Thomas Jefferson did? He went through the literal Word of God and ripped out all the miracles. And then he came away with the Jeffersonian Bible. I hate to break your heart like that when you think about early church fathers. or Not church fathers, early Americans. George Washington more than likely operated with most of his comments as a deist. That, that kind of grips us. Now, did they know Christ? I don't know. I'm just telling you that early on, Many of them were deist. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't trust Christ personally in the sense that they believed that our God controlled the world. They thought that he made it, sure. They give him head not, they give him, they tip their hat to him, but they, don't, they didn't pray to him. They didn't believe that he actually controlled the world. Now, again, there's, there's statements you can hear by Jefferson and Washington that are outstanding. But there are other times you think, whoa, that's bordering on deism. And especially true with Thomas Jefferson. So tragically, church members live this way day in and day out as well. Did y'all know that? Even Southern Baptists living in Missouri live at times like a deist. Uh, there was a, I think it's Groeschel wrote a book once called um, Practical Atheist. A lot of believers, although they know God and know Him through Christ and are saved, actually live out practically more like an atheist 
than a New Testament believer. We live like practical atheists. Sad, isn't it? Kind of hits home when you start studying some of these things. All right, what about finite theism? Uh, This is a world with a finite God. God is there, but He isn't all-powerful. This view has been popularized by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner. Yep. He wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He was motivated to write this book because he had a child born to his wife that was born with a disease that caused premature aging. The child died as a teenager, uh, but he died with the body of a 90-year-old. Your heart reaches out. Your heart hurts for someone like that. He, he had hardening of the arteries and could not see very well. He had gray hair and was wrinkled. Uh, Harold Kushner was devastated by this. Things like this ought not happen. What, why did it happen? Well, maybe there is no God, but this wasn't satisfying to him for an answer. Maybe God enjoyed inflicting pain on people, but that didn't satisfy him. So finally, Kushner comes to the conclusion that God is there, and he's all good, but he's not all powerful. For example, God got beat in the United States on September 11, right? God loses out to tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes. God desires to prevent things from happening to humanity, but sometimes God just doesn't win. Now listen, folks, don't think for a moment that there's an easy solution to that one. That's called theodicy. How do we describe evil taking place in the world and God being all good and righteous? The quick answer to that is, your explanation of God and goodness are not what the Bible gives. <laughs> all right? His understanding of goodness uh, and being all-powerful is not the way we view it. He is absolutely all powerful. He controls all things. But God's desire and understanding of goodness is not our understanding of goodness all the time. Does God enjoy children being born like this? I would say absolutely not. Could God have prevented it? I would say absolutely he could have prevented it. How do you explain this? Well, your answer will be a challenge to a world that you live in. I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road, when, when somebody walks up to you and asks you about that. Well, what about my child that's been born uh, crippled or diseased? And you say you have a good God. How are you going to answer that question? I might not be standing there beside you, right? Somebody else may not speak up, but they need to hear about the sovereign God of the universe. They need to hear a message about a creator God who is absolutely omnipotent and all-powerful and omniscient and omnipresent. So we have to be willing to speak up. All right, panentheism. That is a world in God. We have a God that is present in some kind of mystical way in the world. In other words, this is the kind of worldview that is depicted in Star Wars. Right? It is. That is that's who depicted. Who is depicted? The key to success and happiness and prosperity is that you are in touch with the force. Now, is the force a personal God? No. But the force is a power of energy. And if you get in touch with that thing, you can do some extraordinary things. You can make people fly around the room, choke people, uh, like Vader did, right? Um, 
How many forces are there? The correct answer is one, right? There's the light side, and there's, of course, the dark side. This type of worldview almost always leads to, not to immorality, but amorality. Not immoral, but amoral. In other words, it means the absence of morals completely. There's no such thing as right and wrong when it comes to heterosexuality, homosexuality, bestiality, etc. The only wrong in this kind of world view is to be dogmatic about something. Right? Well, that, does that sound like the world we live in? Well, sure it does. There is always flux, and everything is changing, and it undercuts the Christian worldview that some things are always right, and some things are always wrong. And number seven is polytheism, which means what? Many gods. You say, preacher, that kind of world went out years and years ago with Greek and Roman uh, pantheon. I want to remind you that Hinduism, presently to this day, has many gods. And I, if Katie and Kyle were here tonight, they, would begin, they could explain to you how they witness this all the time in India when it comes to people that are Hindu. They believe in millions, if not billions, of gods. There are about as many gods with names that they come up with as there are ideas that you can think about. There is a professing Christian cult. They're not Christian, actually. Uh, that is thoroughly poly polytheistic, and it is called Mormonism. If you read Mormon literature, you'll find out that there's found, their foundational confession that says this. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. So, Mormonism believes that every, well, those who meet the celestial paradigm can become gods. Which is nothing but polytheism. Because there's only one God. Right? They affirm that if you are good, hard-working, faithful Mormon, you as a male, sorry women, they may expand and change their teaching, but you can't reach that if you're a female. It's only males. You have the capacity and the potentiality to evolve into a deity. Now, folks, some of you probably came into this church tonight thinking that Mormonism was just a branch of Christianity. Ain't so. Okay? You need to know what you believe, folks. We can't be Beetle Baileys. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism is not Christianity. Period. They're not. They're cults. And so just think about that. Mormonism, they believe that Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. And they believe that God Almighty was once a human being that evolved into Godhead. That's rank, rank theology, and it's unbiblical. Now, here you have it. The God options that are out there in the marketplace. You will have a test next Sunday night to see what these are. Or see if you remember what they are. All right. Now, let's talk for a moment. What time is it, Brother David? Six o'clock? Woo! you got to listen fast. Uh, four views of interrelationship of Christianity and other religions. Uh, when it comes to how all this meshes together with our Christianity, what we believe, the Bible teaches us, and other religions. Let's go quickly. Universalism means that all people will ultimately be saved by God or gods. Universalism, in other words, means that when it's all said and done, if God is there, no matter what branch you believe in those four world religions, if God does exist, 
then he has to be a good God, and everybody's going to go to heaven when it's all said and done. That's called universalism. Okay? All roads lead to heaven. When it's all said and done, uh, you'll be saved in the end. Then there's syncretism or pluralism. All world religions have their truth and accomplish basically the same thing. Folks, you'd be surprised how many Christians that claim to know Christ sit in churches every week and think, well, what I'm here for is just equal to what everybody else is worshiping out in their world. Folks, that's not true. And you cannot accept their wrong as right. You have a responsibility as a child of God to tell the truth, to bear witness of the truth, to live the truth. Jesus said, for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness of the truth. And what we believe the Bible teaches is absolutely truth. So all world religions have their truth and accomplish basically the same thing. That's not true. Thus all ultimately will be saved by their own faith. In other words, if you're a good Hindu, eventually you'll make your way to heaven. If you're a good Mormon, you'll make your way to heaven. If you're a good Jehovah Witnesses, Witness or Buddhist, all of those people in their world religions will eventually make it and be fine. That's syncretistic. That is a pluralism. And that's what most, if not the majority of the world believes. Inclusivism. Christ's work of salvation is essential and universal in application and it will be applied even to those not aware of its benefits, but who have lived morally and upright lives. This goes back to the question of what about the person in the remotest part of Africa who's never heard the gospel, and if they never hear the gospel, what will happen to that individual? Uh, some believe that in what would be called inclusivism. Since Jesus did die for the sins of the world, the ones that never hear through their ear, the gospel, uh, are, are basically not held responsible. And they're going to be included. Inclusivism, uh, or God will save all those. We'll talk about that later. You have to put that on hold. But inclusivism is not the biblical teaching. What it does teach in Romans 1 is because God created the world, we're without excuse. God has given us a, an eternal record by things that He made by His hands. He created all things. And then there's exclusivism. Christianity and or Christ is the only way of salvation. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through me. Other world religions may have partial religious insights. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. But only Christianity is sufficient for salvation. Six points of divergence between Christianity and other world religions. Here's where we're going to differ, 100%. Here are six things. The Christian God is personal. Amen? That'll preach, won't it? Uh, Christ alone is the Savior of mankind. And this wasn't just something that kind of showed itself up in the New Testament because all of a sudden God said, hey, I got a good plan. No, folks, there was no plan B. This was the eternal plan of God from the foundation of the world, that the Son of God was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There is no plan B. This was God's plan. And Christ alone is the Savior of mankind. Number three, all persons are of great value as image bearers of God. Why do we fight for the dignity of human life and or the sanctity of human life? This is not just true with babies. It's true for those that would try to do euthanasia. And, 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 and allow older people to die before God allows them to die. We, we fight against any form uh, that would 
denigrate or throw off on, on the dignity of mankind. Because why? You were created in the image of God. That baby in that womb. The moment it is conceived. As a matter of fact, God knew the baby before it was formed in the womb. Jeremiah 1. Before that takes place, that baby is an image bearer of God Almighty. Number four, a Christian philosophy of history is purposeful and spiral and or linear. What we believe is that God set all things in order. He controls all things. And all of history is linear with a purpose. In other words, God's going to end it all. And God's going to make it all new. It's not something that's going out of control. When we start thinking about global warming, we start panicking. We listen to what the media has to say. I got news for you folks. If the world ends, a sovereign God will end it. And if you know him, you have no fear. You don't have to worry about that. God is absolutely in control. Number five, Christian soteriology offers salvation by grace through faith alone to all. So what does soteriology mean? It's a study of salvation. To save in the New Testament is the word sozo, soterios, where you get soteriology. So all of these ologies are just Greek words that are put in front of ology. Does that make sense? Eschatos, end time, is just eschatology. It's the study of the end time events. Pneumatology is the spirit. So the study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is just pneumatology. So, in other words, those are not complicated. But here's the deal. Our salvation is by grace through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because every other religion, you have to work to have your salvation and or your standing. That's not true for Christianity. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to His mercy, He has saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're saved. Washing of regeneration. To regenerate means to take something that is dead and get life to it and make it alive. And that's what happened the day you met Christ. You went from a position of death and at enmity with God and alienated from the life of God. And all of a sudden, by the Spirit's work of regeneration in your heart, at the time you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented of your sin and turned to Him, you were marvelously made alive. That's what the Bible teaches. Number six, Christian eschatology and or end times is based on the hope of the resurrection of which Jesus Christ is the first fruit. This one gets me excited. Well, in a lot of world religions, you might come back as a roach. That'd be sad, wouldn't it? Depending upon how you lived, you might come back as a cow. Be treated a little better, depending on how you've lived. In Christianity, not only does the King of Glory save your soul, and that, that would be enough, would it not be? Uh, but salvation in, involves the salvation of the whole person. Body, soul, and spirit. You're familiar with this. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we know that those who have died in Christ and have been placed in the grave, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does all that mean? 
Well, it means, 1 Corinthians 15, perishable, corruptible, cannot inherit incorruption. In heaven, you've got imperishable, incorruptible. Here on earth, we've got these corruptible bodies. But one of these days, when, when you die, if you were to die tonight, and you're a Christian, your soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. But your body doesn't. Your body's placed in the grave. All right? Awaiting resurrection. And one of these days, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangel, dead in Christ shall rise first. And God is going to resurrect you and give you a new body like unto the Lord, who was the first fruit from the dead the day he walked out of the tomb in Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? That's what we believe. We believe that when we die, folks, that's not the end. You're not going to be in heaven walking, uh, flying around as a phantom. You will be in body, in glory one day. Now, if you check out tonight and God's not finished with His plan of redeeming souls, and you go to glory, you're going to go in your soul. You're going to forever be with the Lord. However, one of these days, we await that bodily resurrection. I mean, these old bodies break down. One day, you won't have to worry about that. Now, I could preach on. But, all right, let me do one more thing. Uh, what time is it? Ten after? One more thing, real fast. I'm pushing past the ten after. I said we would go to. Did you know that even among evangelicals, we come down to something we often have to talk about, and we, we, we throw out those terms like conservative versus liberal. And in our day, we, we have this title of something called progressive Christians. And so the last thing I want to give you is contrasting evangelical and liberal theology. In our church, we promote biblical theology, which we want to believe is evangelical, correct? Uh, we want to believe that evangelicals in the world believe a biblical theology. Let's, let's take that as a given, but that's not always the case. However, there are liberals out there who claim to know Christ but don't view things biblically or the way we do. And here's the contrast. If you're an evangelical Christian and you hold to an evangelical theology, the Bible is the Word of God. However, if you're a liberal, the Bible contains or becomes the Word of God. In other words, man ultimately is the judge over the book. Okay? Number two, Jesus Christ is the Son of God in a sense which no other is. In liberal theology, Jesus Christ is a Son of God in the sense which all men are. Third, the birth of Jesus was supernatural. To a liberal, the birth of Jesus was natural. In other words, there was no virgin birth in liberal theology. And you know, believe it or not, there were tenets of this in all six Southern Baptist seminaries some 30 years ago. I'm thinking, how many years? Well, for sure, 40. Well, and then in the mid-90s, before I went to Southeastern, I know James is shaking his head, but, but at Southern Seminary, where I did my doctoral work, Molly Mashburn was the dean over the School of Theology, and she was a lesbian. In your Southern Baptist schools. Did y'all realize it was that bad? Most of the time, pastors don't, don't tell their congregations how bad it really was in SBC life. But we, were the, we are the only denomination in the history of the world that started down the liberal slope but turned back around to conservatism. You better thank God for men who stood up like Adrian Rogers and John Bassanio 
and stood up and said, nope, we're going to believe the Bible. And so for years, SBC churches, SBC seminaries pushed out these men that started filling our pulpits that didn't believe the Bible. And thus you had church members who had milk toast theology, who didn't believe anything. And that happened for years and years and years. Praise God that he sent the resurgence in SBC life to where we got back to the basics. And we said, what does the Word of God say to us? That's going to be our faith and practice. Number four, the death of Jesus was substitutionary. That means when he died on the cross, he died in a substitutionary fashion, dying for your sins on your behalf in your stead. You should have been crucified. You should have bore the penalty. Christ substituted his, his perfect life in substitution of yours, which is a great way to think about the Lord's Supper, right? In just a few moments. However, in liberal theology, the death of Jesus was just an example to us. It was exemplary, but it wasn't atoning. It wasn't substitutionary. Number five, man is the product of special creation. Amen? Just read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's pretty clear, right? Of all the things the Lord God made, man was made, only man was made in the image of God. Man is a product of evolution. It's hard to believe that you got Christians out there in the world who profess to know Christ that believe in evolution. But they're out there. Man is a sinner fallen from original righteousness, and apart from God's redeeming grace, he is hopelessly lost. In liberal theology, man is the unfortunate victim of his genetics and his environment. Kind of sad, isn't it? And number seven, man is justified by faith in the atoning blood of Christ. The result, a supernatural regeneration from above. However, in liberal theology, man is justified by his works in following an example set by Christ. And result is natural development from within. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Do you remember when uh, Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus and said, hey, you're a great teacher? And... Nicodemus wanted to know what he must do to be born again. And what did Jesus say? You must be born from above. Uh, anothen. You're born from above. And that word born is, is ganao, which means to regenerate. So here's what Jesus said. In order to be heaven bound, you've got to be heaven born. And that can only take place from above. That's the Greek word. So you're regenerated. Your birth, new birth, right? This is not just Jimmy Carter. I'm a born-again Christian. This is, this is new birth, uh, affected by the Lord in us, supernaturally. And if you ever get caught with saying, I, I just don't believe in the supernatural. Well, I want you to understand something. Then you don't believe in your own salvation. Because your salvation is supernatural. Or you're not saved at all. Amen? All right. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we're going to take part of the Lord's Supper. As your head is bowed and eyes are closed, let me read this section of Scripture. I think it will be great for us to think about this and the Lord's Supper. Listen to what Paul said. You, you put your mind, and remember, Jesus said, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. The Lord left us two ordinances to do as a church. Baptism. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then this one, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's baptism, 
the Lord's Supper. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian believers. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself, and then as so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat of the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father, just reading over those verses reminds us of the preciousness of the Lord's Supper. And in Paul's day, there were problems that accompanied the Lord's Supper. They were, they were not treating it properly. They were not rightly discerning the Christian body around them. Uh, some of them perhaps arrived at a, at, a, at a different time for a meal and gorged themselves and carried that same attitude over to the Lord's table. And you were reminding them that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Jesus did in his perfect body that had never one time sinned. And yet he gave it substitutionarily for us. And we're remembering the blood that was shed on Calvary for the remission of our sins. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we've read these scriptures, we think about examining ourselves. Lord, we certainly come before you at this moment and say, Lord God, if there's anything standing in the way of our fellowship with you, any sin that's been unconfessed, Father, we lay it at your feet. We lay it at the cross and we say to you, Lord, thank you that you've forgiven us of all sin, but we also desire to have fellowship with you. And we know that at times there are sins that are standing in the way of our fellowship with you. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. And Lord, would you cleanse us? Lord, cleanse our minds and our hearts, Lord, before you. And Lord, help us to think about why we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a Thanksgiving feast. We're thanking you for your life, death, burial, and resurrection. We're thanking you for forgiveness of sins. Lord, your word says that as often as we do this, we proclaim your death until you come. It's an evangelistic feast. Lord, for those who may witness this in this church, but they're lost, Lord, we pray that they would see Jesus in the elements that perfect life given for us, that knew no sin, and then the blood that was shed so that we might have eternal life. And Father, we do this until you come again. So it's also an eschatological feast. You are coming again. And we celebrate that at the Lord's Supper. God, help us to be more uh, concerned and help us to celebrate and or worship you more uh, through the Lord's Supper at our church. <clears throat> we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.